0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 19. This is the Word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
1: Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it's a special occasion when we get to take a Sunday morning and actually just focus on what you've given to us here in the Bible. And so... Father, I pray that as we do that, that the eyes of our hearts uh, would be illuminated. God, that you would reveal yourself um, to us as you have through this word and uh, just how special uh, this book is to us. And most of all, Father, I pray that we would see Jesus uh, this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's nothing like a good book. Uh, We recently went on vacation, and and one of the things I was looking forward to the most about our, our vacation was the opportunity to do some reading. It excites me when somebody recommends a new book, or when one of my favorite writers publishes a new book. But there's one book that is different than the rest. It's the most famous book. It's the most popular book. It's the most published book ever in all of history and in all the world and of course it's the bible every sunday morning we open god's word to be built up to be encouraged to be reminded to be rebuked to be challenged to be exhorted and to be comforted god's word is a gift and so every sunday morning is special but this morning is more special we have an opportunity to spend time thinking about God's Word itself. We're going to go beyond an encouragement to read and study and meditate and memorize God's Word. We're actually going to talk about the Bible itself. And as I've said, it's a special book, and it is without a doubt, without any doubt, it is the greatest book. Let me just give you some reasons why that is the case. Martin Luther started a world changing revolution. It wasn't just a reformation of the church, certainly was that, it changed the entire course of history. And it was over, one of the key issues was the fact that he said that the Bible was the sole authority for God's people, not the Roman Catholic Church or its leadership. How many books, besides the Bible, are found in nightstands in every hotel? so important that it's the only book that has its own museum, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Now, certainly other religious texts have uh, you know, displays and so forth, exhibits at other museums, but none of them has their own museum. It's so important that many over the course of history have died for it, have dedicated their lives to the faithful translation of this book. And they continue to risk, you, risk their lives, to smuggle it into places like North Korea, where it's completely outlawed. Now, this special place for God's word is not new. It really was at the center of Jewish identity. We come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's called the Shema, which was like a, a proclamation of who God is and what Israel was all about. Let me read these verses, and I just, just listen here. It starts in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And now listen in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, when Israel was about to enter the promised land, here with the beginning of the book of Joshua, and I'm sure many of you can think of, oh, yes, be strong and courageous is what Joshua commanded the people of Israel three times before they entered into the promised land. But tucked in there, in verse 8, is this. Hear this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Consider David's sentiment. And Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest book in all of the Bible. It's actually an acrostic that follows the, first, the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. 176 verses. And the entire thing, all 176 verses, is a love letter from David to God about how much he loves God's word. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Of course, Jesus, being a good Jew, treated the scriptures scriptures with reverence and authority as well. When it came to the scriptures, not only did he revere them, but he relied on them and amplified him. Remember when he was in the desert being tempted at the very end of his 40 days of fasting, and Satan is tempting him. What does he do? Did he panic? Did he get frightened? Was he threatened? No. He relied on God's word. Every time that Satan tempted him, he went to God's word. And when he gave his Sermon on the, sermon on the Mountain, by the way, the Sermon on the Mountain didn't just occur once. I know it's primarily recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, but this is likely a sermon that Jesus repeated multiple times. But in that sermon, he addressed God's law primarily as given in the Ten Commandments. But as he did that, he didn't just take those Ten Commandments. He amplified them. He said it's not enough to just be obedient to the outward uh, letter of the law. Obedience starts in the heart. He amplified what God said. The Bible is the greatest book, and we're going to endeavor today to show you why that's true. And I want to start with a personal story about how much it matters about what you think about the Bible. I was 22. I just graduated from college, and I was uh, talking with a friend about um, the Scriptures. Uh, She was a believer as well. And I said something to the effect of, You know, I think a lot of Genesis is really just sort of, you know, legend that was kind of handed down as a man's attempt to sort of understand what God had done, but it's not actually how things happen. And my friend said, okay, but if that's how you interpret Genesis, how do you know that what happened in the New Testament is actually true? How how do you know that Jesus actually died for your sins. How do you know that he was actually risen from the dead? And it was the most gentle and helpful rebuke that I can remember in a long time. She pointed out to me that if we're going to take God's word as his word, we take the whole thing as his word. We don't get to pick and choose. Well, I like this part. I don't like this part. It doesn't match up with what I think about this, that, and the other we take the whole thing. Where we fall on this matters greatly. And the two places, in fact, are very different. We're going to come back to that thought. So we're going to use Psalm 19 as our launching point this morning. I love what C.S. Lewis says about Psalm 19. He says, this is the greatest poem in the Psalter. And one of the greatest lyrics in the world, is it not? I I asked Melissa to read the entire psalm. We're just going to focus on verses seven through 11. There's simply not enough time to touch all of it. But how beautiful are the first six verses? "The heavens declare the glory of God." But what's interesting in Hebrew literature, in our sort of uh, uh, kind of Western way of thinking, a lot of times our, our logical arguments, we wait, we crescendo at the very end. And that's the, the sort of the, 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 uh, the climax of our arguments. But oftentimes in Hebrew literature, it's a little bit more like a rounded sort of mountain. It builds up, the main point is in the middle, and then it comes back down. So what's the main point? What's in the middle of Psalm 19 except verses 7 through 11? The pinnacle of Psalm 19 is, in fact, David's proclamation about God's word. So point one in your outline, what does David say about God's Word. Let's just, we're just going to go verse by verse here through 7 through 11. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's perfect. What do you know in your life that is perfect? Everything you see, you touch, you taste, you smell, you feel, you think, you experience, is touched and marred by sin. That's a fact. That's just what happened after the fall in the garden. Everything's a little messed up. Nothing is perfect. But the word of God has no mark of sin. It's perfect and blameless. We see that, continuing in verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It is, the word of God is sure. It's trustworthy. Now, The Navy's largest ship, of course, is the aircraft carrier. Now, it wouldn't be a Ben Lewis sermon if there wasn't some sort of Navy reference, right? So we got to work the Navy in somehow. So, the largest ship is the aircraft carrier. Everything about this ship is massive, including its anchor. It's about 20 feet tall and weighs 30,000 pounds. And it actually, the ship actually has two of these anchors. It's a massive tool that anchors the ship in stormy waters. It is sure. And trustworthy. And in the same way, God's word is an anchor for our souls. We're going to talk about that more a little later. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. God's word is right. It's straight and true. Now, my wife has a knack for decorating. And as a matter of fact, we are rid of nearly every relic of decorating that I brought into our marriage. <laughs> now, it only took 17 years, which is really a testament to her patient endurance. But in the course of helping her position pictures and paintings around our home, I employ a laser level. I learned early on that eyeballing wasn't going to meet her standard. And so God's word is really the same for us. If, I le- if left in my own estimation as to what is straight and true, I would end up with a crooked life. But the Bible shows me what is right. It's straight and true. It's a laser level for our lives. Continuing in verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's pure. It's unmixed with evil. I, I recently rejoined X, which used to be called Twitter, and I've carefully carefully curated uh, a group of people that I follow that I'm trying to learn from. And most of what I'm seeing there is quite good. I've actually learned a lot, but it's not pure. It's not an unmitigated good. Occasionally, somebody posts a hot take, which is really just hot garbage. And God's Word, though, is better than good. It's pure. It's untainted. It is An unmitigated good. It's without any error. And by the way, the Lord has a hot take or two in his word, but each one of them is perfect. Each one of them. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's clean, which is really just saying what what, what, uh, David is trying to convey to us here is that following God's law makes us kind of Ritually pure in a sense, so that we can safely come into his presence. Following God's ways as revealed in the Bible makes us clean so that we can safely come into a holy God's presence. Continuing in verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word is true. Now, you have heard, I'm sure, of the saying, your truth. Well, that's your truth. And I think what people mean most of the time when they say that, or I hope they mean this, is that's your perspective. Because at the end of the day, there's only one truth. There are not multiple truths. There cannot be multiple truths. And there's nothing false in God's Word. It is the ultimate source of what is true. No promise he has made will ever be untrue. So many of his promises he's made, he's already made good on So much so that we can have confidence that the promises that he has maybe not yet completely fulfilled that he absolutely will. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. God's word is satisfying in a way that no other written word is satisfying. David says that God's word is better than money and honey. Gold and honey represent all of our human appetites, is what David is trying to show us here. All those human appetites, right? Money, sex, power, comfort, respect, influence, all those things. David is saying that God's word is actually better than all of those things. It's more satisfying, ultimately satisfying, than any of those things. And it's actually how we store up real wealth, eternal wealth in heaven. And it's how, unlike honey, which will make you hungry a few hours later, it's actually how we feed ourselves spiritually to be satisfied. Verse 11, Moreover, by them, speaking of God's word, your servant is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God's word is wisdom. God's commands show us how to live. You know, it's one thing to be very smart. But the reality about intelligence is is a lot of intelligence is God-given. It's a gift to some degree or another. Now, certainly we can cultivate the intelligence that God has given us. But I'm sure many of you know somebody who's very smart but is not streetwise at all. They're actually quite foolish. So there's a bit of a difference between being smart, and being wise. Wisdom is knowledge applied well, and the Bible is full of wisdom. If you're looking for wisdom about how to live your life, about how to make a decision, about how to deal with a situation, the scriptures may not speak to your specific situation, but they will definitely give you principles on how to deal with that situation. And lastly, God's word is rewarding. Like the wise who heed God's warnings, those who obey God's word are rewarded. So that's, the, that's what David says about God's word in Psalm 19. I, I want to transition now to, to point two. What makes God's word so important? What makes the Bible so important? And why is the Bible so unique? Well, one of the first things we learn in the Bible is that God talks. God talks. The very, the third verse, what do the scriptures say? God says, let there be light. He is a God of speaking. He is a God of self-revelation. And the Bible is God's primary source of revelation to us. The heavens declare the glory of God, but the Bible tells us who he is. That's his primary source of revelation. So what makes the Bible so unique? Two things. Two things make the Bible different from every other book. Number one, it's authority, and number two, it's power. So let's look at its authority. Well, its authority, where its authority comes is because it comes from God. And we have sort of three theological words that all start with N. There are the three Ns. God's word is inspired, God's word is inerrant, and God's word is infallible. And those are are, are where we get uh, the reason for the Bible's authority. Let me just give you a few verses on each one of these. God's Word is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, which is just another way of saying it's inspired by God. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.21 for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying here is as all of these words in this book are written down by human beings, and it's in their own voice. I mean, you can read John, and he reads a lot different than any of Paul's epistles, and he definitely reads different than Habakkuk, right? Right? Well, that's because those are different people, but it's the same God inspiring each one of those writers as they write that book. God's word is inerrant. A corollary of inspiration is God's, is God's word's total truthfulness and inerrancy. Now, if I know that you are a truthful person, I know that I can trust what you tell me. So it will be accurate. It's going to be truthful because that's who you are. And in the same way, if all of God's word If all of God's word is his words, we can know with full confidence in that whatever the scripture says, it speaks truthfully and in a trustworthy manner. It's inerrant. Jesus said it this way in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 30, verse five says it this way. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then lastly, The word of God is infallible, infallible, uh, which basically just means it will never fail. Everything that God has promised will come true. 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25. And this is actually Peter quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. All flesh is like grass, and in its glory like the flower of the grass. The flower The grass withers and the flower fades. But what? The word of the Lord stands forever. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So God's word is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. That's where it gets its authority. Different from every other book. But not only that, God's word has power. That no other book ever written or ever will be written, has. It's different. It's unique in that way. It's powerful in that it always accomplishes its mission. Jeremiah, excuse me, Isaiah 55, uh, verse 11, puts it this way. It's one of my favorite verses about God's word. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. For those of you familiar with the King James, it shall not return to me void. Shall not return to me empty, but this is the part that's amazing. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing in which I sent it. God's word always accomplishes its mission. It always accomplishes its mission. It is powerful. And God's word is a living and active sword. It's actually like a scalpel discerning thoughts and intentions. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and it's active. There's no other book that is living and active. There are lots of other books that have words that are inspiring. I mean, Shakespeare, we're still quoting Shakespeare 500 years later, right? Shakespeare is not the Bible, brothers and sisters. It's not inspired by God. It is not a living and active word that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews continues, it's living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a scalpel that cuts through all of our crud and gets to the heart of the matter. So that is why the Bible is so important. It has authority that no other book has. It has power that no other book has. Point three in your outlines now: How does God's Word benefit us? Now, um, Rosaria Butterfield is uh, one of my favorite authors. Um, she recently published a book called "The Five Lies of the Anti-Christ- of this Anti-Christian Age." It's an excellent book. I highly commend it to you, if you're interested. Um, and she tells her own story in chapter six of that book. And I want to retell some of it with you. I I appreciate everything about her. She's really, she has a way with words. Um, She she really shoots it straight. But what I most appreciate about her is her story. You see, Rosaria was a champion for the feminist and gay movements. She was a tenured professor in the English department at Syracuse University in upstate New York, a PhD in English. She pioneered the gender studies program there, and and if you're not aware, gender studies is not a neutral source of study. It's very much a Marxist, uh, oppressed, oppressor framework of thinking about the world. In fact, the gender studies, the whole thing would do away with gender. That's kind of the the whole mission. She started that at Syracuse. She was a dedicated feminist, a lesbian, and in a long-term relationship with another woman. In 1997, she wrote an op-ed for the local paper titled, Promise Keepers' Message is a Danger to Democracy. For those uh, who remember the Promise Keepers movement of the 90s, um, a lot of good it did for the church in encouraging men to step up and lead and be men. So you can imagine how a feminist might feel that was threatening. In response, a local pastor named Ken Smith wrote a letter in response, asking how he might better introduce English students at Syracuse to the Bible. He wrote, quote, How can they appreciate Western literature with all its allusion to Scripture when they are ignorant of what it says? He went on to explain that he had a 30- to 40-minute presentation called A Book Review of the Bible, and he wanted to share his talk with her students. And would she be open to hearing his presentation? She had never read the Bible, but she had no trouble critiquing it, so she took his invitation, actually, as a helpful rebuke. Over the next few months, they met for many dinners, and after some time, Ken asked her again, could he make his presentation to her students? She agreed, but only after seeing it for herself. So she came over for a dinner, and after the dinner, he set up his notes, and he began in Genesis 1:1, which, by the way, I love, brothers and sisters. He started at the very beginning. That's really where we need to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ken said that that was the beginning of creation. And he said that that was how we can know how things began and and who did it, who, who started things. He said God is eternal and that there is more to life than the material and physical world. Well, Rosario began taking notes in two columns on the right for what ken said and on the left on the excuse me on the on the on the left for what ken said and on the right for what she believed about what he said her first page of notes said things like yikes this is nuts and what would karl marx say on it went with ken expounding truth from scripture in a way that a phd in english would appreciate when they came to jesus he said Jesus also preached. He told people about God, about themselves, about the world, and about why he had come. He showed his love and concern that the people, men, women, and children, had worth and value. But yet, he spoke plainly to them about their sin against God and his judgment awaiting them. He bluntly told people, repent. He not only invited them to turn from self-centeredness and pride, he invited them to find forgiveness with God through him. He exposed self-righteous religion as a farce. He spent time with the social outcasts and gave them hope. Gave them hope through his love for them. When people heard Jesus, they heard truth. So many came to him in faith, but lawbreakers do not naturally like to hear someone pointing out their sins, especially when it's true, even if it is God himself saying it. So you might imagine what happened next, unquote. Reflecting back on what Ken said, he told people about themselves. Rosaria writes in her book, I felt a palpable sense of solid ground beneath my feet. I wondered, does God know me? Does does God know me better than anyone? Could this be true? Through Bible reading, listening to Ken preach God's word and ministry of mature Christian women around her, Rosaria put her faith in Christ. Over time, she left behind her religion of feminism and lesbianism. She left her lover. She left her job. It did not happen overnight. And it was not easy as for testimony evidences, but it happened. And it began with engagement and talk about the importance of the Bible. Amazing. Not many of us have as dramatic a story as Rosaria's, but each one of us needs just as much help as she did. And the Bible is a critical piece of that puzzle. So, how does God's word benefit us? There's five. There are innumerable benefits, but I did my best to whittle it down to five. And uh, I really struggled with this part because I could have just gone on forever. But five, five benefits. The first one is this: it helps us make sense of the world. The Bible answers the most important questions we face: Is there a God? How do we get here? What is our purpose? What does? Why? Does everything feel broken around me and even inside me? What can I do about it? Right from the beginning of Ken's presentation to Rosaria, she came face to face with answers. God is eternal, right? In the beginning, God. God is eternal. He pre-existed everything. God is three in one, a trinity that defies categories that we understand but is nevertheless true. God made everything. He spoke it all into existence. God put everything under man's stewardship. But then we rejected God's rule over us. And it broke everything. Bringing death and sickness and murder and sin into the world. And most importantly, our relationship with God. It broke that relationship. But here's the beautiful thing about the God of the Bible. God did not abandon his beloved creation. You and me. He promised a Savior. Like, right after it happened, guys, in Genesis 3. The snake's going to bite your heel, but you're going to crush his head. There's one who's coming who's going to crush his head. who's going to fix everything. And he made good on a promise of a Savior by sending his son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has died for the sins who all, of all, who repent and put their trust in him. And he was raised to life again, defeating sin and death. And lastly, the Bible, it defines who we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Our feelings, this is really important, our feelings can lie to us. And the world around us lies to us. But he gives us his word, which is the best for us. So that's the first one. It helps us make sense of the world. Number two, it's an anchor for us. As Rosaria navigated this radical change, the Bible, along with her elders and the Christian women in her church, they anchored her, all of these things. David talks about how God's word is sure and trustworthy, and earlier, I compared it to the aircraft carrier's anchors. Given all that we face, all the challenges of this life, thank the Lord the anchor of his word is surer than any man-made object no matter how big it is. For example, God effectively promises us, and our experience shows us, that we are going to have pain and suffering. His word to us in those times is a sweet balm. The Psalms, all 150 Psalms, speak to so many, if not every situation that we might find ourselves in life. They are a great balm for the soul. Another example of how God's word is an anchor for us. When we are unsure of what is true, it shows us the way. Now, God has given us a conscience to to determine what is right and wrong, but ultimately our conscience is broken too. It's not perfect. It's not a reliable gauge. I mean, you could ask any person that's same-sex attracted. It feels very right to them to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. It's such a deep and innate part of, of who we are. But embracing that lie does not lead to life. It leads to bondage and eventually death. But it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way. So we need an anchor, a source of unchangeable truth, to tell us what is right and wrong. David penned these famous lyrics. I've already referenced them once. And they've been sung for millennial now, millenniums now. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Another example of how God's word is an anchor. It's an anchor from drifting away from God. There's a, a story, a book that I read called Mission Drift, so a number of years ago. And in that book, there's a story about the Crowell Trust. Henry Crowell was the founder of Quaker Oats, and at the time, he had made so much money. There were oil tycoons and barons, and railroad tycoons and barons, and so forth. Well, he was the cereal tycoon, this guy, Henry Crowell. Well, he got converted by hearing a sermon by Dwight Moody. And he established a trust. From that point on, his entire life was dedicated to to Christ. And he established a trust with very specific guidelines that the money would only be used towards specific evangelical Christian missions. And before every board meeting, the trustees read aloud their charter, this charter, as a reminder of their duties and and calling as trustees. It it, it serves as sort of an anchor for them to say, this is what we are about. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper meeting, the meeting that we have before this one, where we open God's word, we pray aloud, and then we take the Lord's Supper, that's that's as good an anchor as you're going to get. To come every Sunday and to be reminded of God's sacrifice for you, what he's done for you, and who you are in him. A sinner, no longer a sinner, but now a saint redeemed by grace. That's the kind of anchor that you have. Number three, the Bible builds us up. Now, don't you want to be around people that make you a better person, that bring the best out in you? Now, some of the bi- best advice I've heard when thinking about a potential spouse was this Does this person draw you closer to God? This, this person make you want to be more like Jesus. And it's the same way the Bible builds us up. Right there in that 2 Timothy 3.16, right after that is verse 17. So all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. The fourth way in which the the, the Bible helps us, it protects us. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, right? And Ephesians 6 says that God's word is a sword. It's a sword that we must use to defend ourselves from these cosmic powers of darkness. And lastly, how the Bible helps us. We don't as much read it As it reads us. See what David says in verses 12 and 13 of Psalm 19. He says this. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. We don't read it as much as it reads us. Back in verse 6, David writes that nothing is hidden from its heat. And he uses that same adjective in verse 12. When he says hidden faults, it's actually the same Hebrew word. Hidden from its heat, hidden faults. C.S. Lewis pointed out uh, about what David might have been thinking when he wrote this. Lewis wrote this. He says, as David has felt the sun, remember he was a shepherd, perhaps in the desert, searching him out in every nook of shade where he attempted to hide from it, So he feels the law, searching out all the hiding places of his soul. We need something to expose us for who we really are. And the Bible does that. Point four, now finally in your outlines, what should we do with it? Really kind of, what's our application this morning? Well, as we've heard already, we need to read the Bible on a regular basis. If you... Our curious some reliable translations, the ESV is a reliable translation, the CSB, um, the NIV, all good, and a study Bible is very helpful. The ESV study Bible is excellent, the MacArthur study Bible is excellent. These are good resources. Memorizing scripture, hiding it in our hearts, and say for times of suffering and pain, it can be difficult to even desire God in those moments. But to have, have God's word hidden in your heart helps. We meditate on it. We can journal, be in group study or solo study. Sitting under preaching is a very important part of taking God's word in. Listening to podcasts. How often are you in your car or working around the house when you can be listening to something? Teaching. Now, you don't have to be a teacher in the church, but maybe you have children. Maybe you have grandchildren. Teaching them God's word. In the everyday talk. Reading spiritual books is an excellent way to learn more about who God is. Let me just share a little bit about my personal journey, journey in this. I was saved at nine. I love church. I love God's people. I love God. I love Jesus. But I was not at all consistent in his word. It took quite a long time. For that to actually be the case. That really the first time that I got into sort of my own personal study of God's word was um, a senior in high school. My young life leader asked me and a few of the guys to join what he called the James gang. And every Friday morning we would open the book of James and he'd give us a little bit of prep for the next week. And that was really useful for me. I went on to college and another mentor. Uh, we met on Tuesday mornings and that kept me on a fairly basis in God, consistent basis in, in God's word. And then between my junior and senior year of college, I read Mere Christianity, a life-changing book for me that took it from, I would say, very much a faith that I just sort of accepted to one that I actually owned and that I understood things more for myself. Fast forward a little bit. Somebody read, uh, gave me a book by J.C. Ryle. was like an 1850s, 1800s preacher, titled How Readest Thou? And it was basically a challenge to read the Bible. And after reading it, I felt very convicted because I was not regularly in God's Word in my own time. And I read that very night, I started reading. And I don't know why God led me to Ephesians chapter 2, or excuse me, to Ephesians. And I got to chapter 2 and verse 4. And um, it's like these word, it's like I'd never read these words before. You want to talk about God's word being living and active. These words jumped off the page at me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That was a really important point for me. But even then, it was a while before I got into it every single day sort of reading um, Bible. It was probably 38 uh, when I read the, through the Bible for a year, through the year for the first time. And then um, this year will be the fifth year, if I complete it, that, uh, that I re- will have read the Bible uh, all the way through in a row. Um, and so, uh, and now the, the latest thing that I'm trying to add to my own personal journey in terms of, of working through God's Word and my own personal time is, uh, is journaling a little bit more. And I just share that with you, hopefully as an encouragement, You know, if you're like, man, I don't read a whole lot on my own, it's okay. As Greg said in the first service, today's a great day to start. There's no reason to wait. You have the most amazing resource at your fingertips, on your phone, when you're in the car. All of these apps will play God's word for you and read it to you. So as we wrap up this morning, I just want to say, just remind you, yes, the Bible is a book, but it's the greatest book. And like any book, it tells a story. But so far, to some degree, we've kind of missed the most important part of the story. That's Jesus. He's actually the point of the entire story. Everything in Scripture comes back to him. We have this banner over my left shoulder that says, We wish to see Jesus. Now, these were Gentiles outside of the Jewish fellowship who had wanted to see Jesus. They were the ones saying that. They were seeking him and wanted to be brought near. But the truth is, while these Gentiles were seeking Jesus, it was Jesus who was really seeking them. The same is true for each of you here this morning. For the mature believer, he's seeking you. Pick up your Bible and read. He loves you. He sees where you are right now. Whether that's on the mountaintop or in the deepest valley. He's calling you into deeper fellowship with him. Through his church, through prayer and the word. For the believer stuck in sin, Jesus is seeking you. Pick up your Bible and read. He loves you. He's calling you to break free of besetting sin. Let his word read you and show you that sin. Show you those hidden faults. He wants you to become wise. He wants you to be anchored to him through his word. For the confused by what the world says, Jesus is seeking you. Pick up your Bible and read and find truth that does not change. For the seeker unsure about what to believe, Jesus is seeking you. Pick up your Bible and read. Read the Gospels. Read Galatians, Ephesians, and Romans. Read the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Read anything. God's word is living and active, and it does not return void. It will accomplish its mission for you. And his mission is for you to know him. For the skeptic and the doubter, Jesus is seeking you too. (laughs) Just like Rosaria Butterfield, you may not be seeking him. You may not be able to remember the last time you even opened a Bible. You may have never opened a Bible. But that doesn't change how he feels about you. I invite you, but more importantly, Jesus invites you to take up his word and read. Risk it. Take the risk. What do you have to lose? See what happens. In the Bible, you will find truth unchanging. You're going to find an anchor. You're going to find comfort. You're going to find inspiration. You're going to find challenge. And you're going to find Jesus the lover and savior of your soul. Please stand with me as we dismiss in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. What a powerful word it is. What a gift it is that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Let us never neglect this gift that you have given us. Let us always be mindful and and thankful uh, of this word that you've given us. But most of all, Father, we read your word because it points us to the Savior and lover of our souls, Jesus. And help us as we study and read and meditate on your word to be drawn nearer to the wonderful Savior, Jesus. God, we ask for your help in this, and we ask your blessing on our our week as we go forth from here. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.